I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending October 25th. In this episode, Tesla Motors, Automotive Features, Vehicular Gimmicks, and the weird eagerness among some people to be lab rats for Silicon Valley companies. Also, India has quietly developed world-class expertise in semiconductor design. In this episode, we talk with Sanjay Gupta, the person leading NXP's semiconductor operations in India, about India's aspirations for developing a domestic semiconductor industry. And researchers have employed machine learning techniques to train an artificial intelligence to figure out for itself how to draw human faces. Of course, it's artwork, but... Is it art? The most interesting thing really happened when they limited the amount of brush strokes that the AI was allowed. They reduced it from 1,000 down to 20 strokes, and then the faces started to look like abstract art, which was incredible. But you could see the AI had clearly identified the features that make up the face, the eyes, the nose, the mouth. These abstractions, they previously thought you could teach that to an AI using you know, supervised learning uh, you know, with labeled data, but it turns out you can do it with reinforcement learning. We'll return to AIs and art later in the episode. One of the great attractions of Tesla cars is that Tesla can upgrade the software at any time to offer new features as soon as Tesla decides to download and activate them. In a sense, they're treating their cars the same way that makers of DVRs or smartphones treat their products. Admittedly, it's an innovative way to do things in the automotive industry. At the same time, there's a difference between what can go wrong with a bug-riddled app on an 8-ounce smartphone in your hand and what can go wrong with a bug-riddled feature in a 5,000-pound car out on the road. So far, the deaths in autonomous vehicles have been few, but there have been some. Auto manufacturers have managed to get responsibility for those deaths assigned to the drivers themselves, but as vehicle manufacturers make progress with autonomous driving, they will not be able to do that forever. EE Times international editor Junko Yoshida has been writing about Tesla and its Smart Summon feature recently. Here she is with Colin Barnden, who follows autonomous vehicle technology for Semicast Research. Hi, Colin. How are you today? Hey, Junko. I'm good, thank you. All right. So we wanted you to come to the show for two reasons. A, because I wanted us to talk about Tesla, our favorite topic. And B, I want us to discuss the ultimate responsibility when autonomous features malfunction. Who is going to be blamed, humans or machines? So second one is a big topic. Uh, I want to start with Tesla. Uh, What's your opinion about Tesla's newly rolled out smart summons? Are you comfortable or not comfortable with it? I don't really look at it in terms of comfortable or not comfortable. I kind of look at it in terms of why are Tesla introducing this feature in the first place. Um, And a lot of it looks to me like they really want to show how clever they are and and, uh, the features that they can roll out with their um, over-the-air updates. Um, And I I really look at Smart Summon really as more of a gimmick um, than anything that I could call a, a safety or a convenience feature. Um, And really, when I look at at where the debate is going around uh, road safety and, you know, the 1.35 million um, fatalities that uh, that happen on our roads globally each year, you know, I really wonder why Tesla are rolling out um, these sorts of features. Yeah. Yeah. Gimmick is uh, probably the apt 
description. You know, but the, I was just thinking that that why are Tesla owners so forgiving about imperfect software? Is this something to do with the culture of software development in general, with the notion that things will always get better in the next software upgrades? What do you think, Colin? I think I can separate Tesla from every other automotive OEM.、Um, really, they've got this attitude of rolling out,、um, essentially getting their customers to beta test their、um, their features, just in the same way that、um, we used to see beta tests of、uh, of Microsoft Windows,、uh, you know, twenty odd years ago. <laughs> And、um, you know, it's a really unusual way of going about doing it on public roads and highways to essentially be beta testing、um, features in you know vehicles weighing five thousand pounds or more. Um, so really, every single other autom- automotive OEM、um, doesn't do this,、um, and Tesla's kind of a unique case that、uh, that seems to think that this is okay and that this is acceptable on public roads and highways. Yeah. All right. So you know what actually prompted me to discuss this was the、um, you know now with the emergency of new features such as smart summon or autopilot,、uh, famously or infamously, got me thinking that. When something goes wrong, you know, with the autonomous features or autonomy misbehaves, who are responsible? Do you think? So this is a great question, and、um, really, we can go back to the、um, the SAE automation levels to、um, to have a, a reference to this. I mean, at levels one and two, we're really talking about assisted driving, and、um, here it's the human that's liable at all times. Right.、Um, and the, the technology here really is ADAS, and uh, increasingly uh, now um, infrared vision driver monitoring systems.、Um, when we go to levels three, four, and five.、Um, Where we're talking about autonomous driving or self-driving,、yeah. it, it is the OEM that is liable whenever the machine driver is engaged. And really, we can we can differentiate the three levels. We can say the OEM is liable some of the time at level three.、Mm-hmm. The OEM is liable most of the time at level four. Um, and the OEM is liable all of the time at level five.、Mm. Um, so really, if people are promoting their systems and their 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 features as level three, four, and five, then it means that the OEM is liable part of the time.、Um, and I think that's really where the grey areas are starting to come in. That people are now talking about level four features,、um, but where the human is liable at all times,、um, and that doesn't make any sense on the、uh, the SAE levels. Yeah, I mean,、uh, this is one thing that people aren't really talking about. You know, I think what is more important than SA levels is that this responsibility, right? This is the first instance that you know when when OEMs、uh, roll out fully autonomous vehicles, in which there will be no drivers.、Um, this is the first instance that the, the car OEMs will have nobody to blame. So, what are they thinking about that now? I mean, what happens now? I wonder. Well, you've actually hit hit on the absolutely perfect question because quite simply nobody knows. Right.、Um, so, so at the moment, you know, be it be it in a taxi, a、uh, robo taxi,、um, you know, as we saw with the、um, the the experience in Tempe, Arizona, you know, it was essentially the、um, the backup driver that can be blamed for not paying attention. Right. And it's the same with、uh, most of the Tesla accidents.、Um, you know, when when Teslas work, then Teslas are fantastic. But the moment that anybody is is killed or injured, then it's because the human didn't use it right. Yeah. I...、Um, and that the fault is with the human driver. But what they've both got in common is that the the human、uh, is essentially a A sacrificial lamb、um, under those circumstances. When we start going into fully driverless vehicles where there is no human,、um, there's nobody then to blame but the OEM.、Uh, 
Um, and I'm not convinced that um, either the the OEMs or the uh, the robo taxi companies are actually ready for the uh, the legal and polit- political implications of uh, of that situation. Um, so it'll be interesting to see really how that um, that develops over time. Yeah, and I'm actually pretty sure that they will find a way to blame either pedestrians or somebody else, right? I mean, they will have the, some fine print somewhere in the robotaxi when you sign the deal. You know, you're sort of giving your life away, in fact, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think this is really what it comes down to is we've seen some massive valuations for some of these robotaxi companies. Um, but once the lawsuits start coming in, once because it, it's it's a statistical inevitability, once these things start traveling billions and then accumulatively trillions of miles, there will be fatalities on the road. I mean, it's just simply not plausible that this technology will work perfectly forever. Um, and then what happens when the legal liability starts to be raised and we start looking at, at who is actually um, um, going to be accountable for this? And um, at that point, we go from engineers to lawyers and lawmakers. And um, that's when the, the fun will really start. Yep. So my last question, I just want to pull back a little bit. Um, I keep thinking about the uh, what I see as level four, level two mixed reality. You know, we've been talking about ADAS, how ADAS will save people's lives. But when you start bringing in autonomous features, well, seeming, seemingly uh, level four-like uh, uh, features into level two cars. Um, how do you deal with this responsibility thing? So you've still come back to that point of uh, it is if it is a level four feature, then yeah. it is the OEM that is liable if anything goes wrong. Right. So by definition, if, if, if it's being offered as a level four feature, then it has to be the OEM that is ultimately reliable for whatever happens yeah. when that feature is activated. Right. So looping back to where we started, if uh, if Tesla want to offer Smart Summon as a level four feature, yeah. um, but they're, they're saying that the human is liable should anything go wrong, yeah. then legally that is a level two feature and it is the human operator irrespective of what people are trying to say it would be the human operator that is liable for um for that um, malfunctioning or or any um fatalities that would happen with that right all right and then then the, the issue comes that uh, the uh how do you how do you make sure that those autonomy features actually function safely but it seems like nobody seems to be responsible for looking at that right i mean in america for example that uh, you know there are things like federal motor vehicle safety standards but that's mostly look at the things like braking i mean the things like uh, the mechanical stuff nobody's responsible for overseeing the software safety yeah i mean really what we're talking about as i say tesla is a unique case the other automotive oems don't really do this um and Everybody says to me, you know, Tesla's got this this gigantic, you know, six year or so technology lead. And I, I always say to people, you know, like, really? And, and what, what we can do is we can look at Tesla and we can say, if you disregard proper R&D, you know, you can have a three year lead. And, and if you disregard, you know, automotive qualification, validation and testing from from bodies like TUV, um, you can get another three year lead. And, and really, if you go through proper proper R&D, all of these problems that are actually coming out in terms of the, the functionality and the um, 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 the reliability of the system in different um, edge cases, um, they, they all get ironed out in the R&D phase. And then the technology actually goes into volume production. And it's Tesla really is unique 
right. uh, in the industry of rolling out these features through the over-the-air updates without really doing proper validation, without really doing proper R&D. Thanks, Colin. No problem, Junko. That was Colin Barnden of Semicast Research. I can tell you this for a fact. Insurance companies and lawyers have anticipated everything that the automotive and electronics industries are still hashing out, such as who's responsible for what and under which circumstances when it comes to autonomous vehicles. They're locked, loaded, and waiting for anyone that gets too careless with their autonomous vehicles. Semiconductor expertise has gradually dispersed around the globe. From the initial hotbed in and around San Jose in California, the semiconductor industry has spread to other pockets within the U.S., to Germany, France, and other countries in Europe, to Israel, and to Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and other locales in Asia. Semiconductor design is looked upon as a key capability in an advanced industrial society. That's an impetus for China's formal plan to build a domestic semiconductor industry, for example. Another country that has quietly gathered some of the prerequisites to become globally competitive in semiconductors is India. The country is known for its software development prowess, based on a thriving community of software engineers with excellent programming skills. But as importantly, over the last couple of decades, India has been quietly amassing critical design expertise at both the system and the chip levels. Get past the surface of a chip startup or an EDA company in Silicon Valley, and you might very well discover a huge design team back in India. We know why India has not become a major semiconductor force on its own yet. It lacks the investment infrastructure, and it also lacks physical infrastructure. Building a fab requires substantial amounts of energy and clean water, for example. On the other hand, India has been gradually accruing world-class expertise, and it might be a matter of time before designers in India become more than just a secret weapon in the armories of companies nominally headquartered elsewhere. EE Times editor Nitin Dahad was in India recently, where he caught up with Sanjay Gupta, Vice President Engineering and India Country Manager at NXP Semiconductors. What have you seen as the changes and what do you think are the impacts that uh, NXP India is making at a global scale? So uh, certainly, I'm uh, lucky to have been in this industry for the last 24 years and uh, uh, got an honor to see the industry transforming from originally a kind of a back office uh, industry with a lot of uh, translation work coming to India, like uh, the backend activities uh, for technology transformations from one to the another, or maybe a low-end verification work. But uh, I'm very glad to say that in last two and a half decades, uh, there's a complete transformation in the value chain where Indian companies and NXP in particular are uh, operating out of India. Uh, more and more talent base in India is uh, contributing on uh, cutting-edge technologies, uh, next-generation architectures, for uh, for the prime areas of focus for the company. And uh, not just they are contributing, they are leading some of the very, very key global uh, impact projects from India. Uh, the case in point being a lot of next generation uh, ADAS products for uh, targeting driverless cars. Uh, they are actually being driven out of India, like radar-based product line, like vision-based product line and uh, many more. So, yeah, quite excited uh, with the way industry is transformed. Uh, thank you. And um, we, we talked a little bit about um, what you see as uh, what's happening over the next four or five years and also uh, beyond that. I think one of the things I've seen is um, a lot of um, small Indian startups, they get acquired by large um, uh, global companies. 
Do you see that changing in the next uh, five to 10 years? And what are you doing in sort of terms of innovation to sort of enable that next generation of of global majors? So I guess this is the next logical step. Uh, Certainly in a short term, in uh, less than five years, I I see the, uh, the scenario may not change in a big way, but uh, the moment we zoom out uh, to look into more than five years, I believe the transformational changes and the structural changes are happening at multiple levels. Uh, if we talk about the government-related policy decisions, there's a big mindset change in government and in bureaucracy in India that India needs to play a very active role in next-generation semiconductors development. And it will be a big enabler for even uh, bridging the physical deficit challenges that India has. Uh, semiconductor uh, import being one of the biggest imports after oil. And hence, very, very high focus directly from government on initiatives like Make in India, Invest in India, and uh, Design in India. Uh, The second factor is from the industry itself. The kind of talent that we have available in the country today compared to 20 years ago, we're all set. We're a lot of indigenous development for uh, enabling this dream uh, of local semiconductors will happen for sure. And I see a lot of startup companies within India that are actually growing up every single year. There are a couple of more companies that come up. And I believe that the future is uh, developing in such a way that these companies will be big companies for tomorrow and uh, will be, you know, the, the name uh, to reckon with in future. And and to do that, I think uh, one of the things you you highlighted was about the uh, young inno- in, the innovation you're doing in the young innovator competition, where uh, you just held it for the first year, and and I think there's a demand to have that more. Can you just tell us the innovation aspect and also you know, that competition? Sure. So innovation is the lifeline of any technology company, and. Uh, Whatever we discussed right now, uh, this is only be possible if we continue on this innovation uh, uh, track as a DNA. So NXP being the front runner of uh, driving innovation uh, globally as well as in India, what we did in particular, we kicked off uh, one of the innovation works teams called um, the core design of hardware and software uh, to enable our engineers and uh, uh, academia also to have a taste of how it feels like developing the entire end product with a clear reference design and applications in mind. So what we did, we launched a, a f- in its first year uh, a event called Young Innovator Design Challenge where uh, we uh, wanted our employees to get uh, connected at all levels uh, and emotion being a key part. Uh, we started that none other uh, better way to start innovation uh, other than the you know family first. So all the employee family members uh, especially the young kids uh, starting from 6th class till 12th class were invited to be part of this uh, young innovator design challenge where NXP India leadership team nurtured them on how to use the kits uh, with uh, NXP chips plus the overall embedded software and uh, give them uh, some interesting uh, goals and targets to give our live demos we nurtured them and trained them for over two months. And then we had uh, a round of first round, second round, uh, semifinals and grand finale at all three sites in NXP India. And uh, I'm very excited to share that out of 120 people, uh, 20 young innovators who participated, uh, we eventually uh, uh, selected uh, uh, the three winners uh, from a junior round, which is class 6th, 7th, 8th, and uh, three winners from a senior round, uh, 19th, 12th. And that really inspired the feeling that, you know, the break the mental barrier that at age is not a barrier and you can actually innovate given the right opportunity and the right environment. So just finally, so how old was the, the kid who created the winning product, the driverless car? 
So the youngest one uh, was about 12 years of age. And uh, uh, even the other ones were a couple of years uh, around that age. So we were very excited and we got wonderful feedback and uh, compliments from the parents uh, that uh, this was a great way to uh, to inspire people about how semiconductor is going to change the way in future. And we hope to continue the event uh, like a, a signature event from NXP India every year. Sanjay Gupta, thank you very much. Thank you. That was editor Nitin Dahad with Sanjay Gupta from NXP in India. India might lack a domestic semiconductor industry, but to be fair, Indian chip companies have a tendency to get acquired pretty quickly by international conglomerates. That tends to obscure the fact that India has a deep bench of engineering talent, one of the most important requisites for becoming a power in semiconductors. EE Times is preparing a report on the development of India's growing role in the international semiconductor industry. Keep a lookout for that on eetimes.com. Researchers in artificial intelligence, AI, are experimenting with new techniques to teach machines. A research operation named DeepMind recently got our attention for teaching an AI to draw. The point wasn't that an AI could learn to draw. That's been demonstrated a long time ago. The point was to find out how effective new machine learning techniques can be. Can they be used to get a computer to learn to draw a human face without the absolute minimum of guidance? The short answer is yes, but as always, we find endless fascination in the engineering details. Here's Junko again, talking with EE Times editor Sally Ward-Foxton, who wrote the story for us. Hi Sally, how are you? Good, thanks. Hi Junko. So, I understand that you are inspired by DeepMind Research's recent project. Um, so I want you to describe what this research project entails. Sure, yes. Uh, this research is out of DeepMind, a company that Google bought a few years back. Uh, the company's overall aim is to build artificial general intelligence, but with this particular project, they've taught an AI agent how to paint. Um, the project was presented at the Deep Learning Summit here in London by DeepMind research scientist Ali Eslami. The researchers started by teaching AI to understand handwriting and, by extension, how to write but this new research is much more complex. They basically trained the AI on photos of faces and they gave it access to a drawing program. They used MyPaint, which is kind of similar to Photoshop, and they let it control the brush sizes, the colors, uh, the weight of the brush strokes to try to create a realistic looking face by drawing. Um, the results were rather amazing, actually. Uh, on eetimes.com, I've got some pictures that it drew. They're not photorealistic, but they do look like drawings of faces. Um, it's not trying to reproduce a target image, you know, a specific photograph. Rather, it's trying to create an image that's different from the data set, but that looks like it belongs in that data set, if you yeah. see what I mean. Um, and the results got even more interesting when the researchers restricted the amount of brush strokes the AI was allowed to use, because the pictures that came out of it started to look like abstract art which was very cool. So let's go down, you know, one step deeper here. That the, So what sort of specific AI technologies uh, did DeepMind guys um, using here? They used reinforcement learning, which is where you use two AI agents working together. An AI agent is just a, a neural network that takes some kind of action. So they use two agents. One's doing the drawing. It's trained on the photos of faces and it tries to recreate them. And the other agent looks at the drawings and produces a feedback score, which is based on how close to the training data it thought the drawing was. This feedback score is fed back to the agent doing the drawing so that it can improve. Uh, but 
the important thing really about reinforcement learning is I it uses unlabeled data so you train it on these photographs of faces but you don't say you know this is the eyebrow this is the ear these are the teeth it has to identify those features on its own it has to learn to do that yeah so it's sort of like AI teaching another AI right exactly right yeah now so you said that the results were quite remarkable but uh, tell me that what did we learn from this project so yeah it produced some very realistic looking faces um not specific faces it just drew something which looks like it could be a face um of course it you know it hasn't seen a person drawing or it hasn't you know watched how people draw but the steps it took in creating the major features like the eyes and nose first in the heavier strokes and then it added these minor features maybe like shadow or contour towards the end all of this was learned by reinforcement learning um the most interesting thing really happened when they they limited the amount of brush strokes that the AI, the AI was allowed. They reduced it from 1,000 down to 20 strokes, and then the faces started to look like abstract art, which was incredible. But you could see the AI had clearly identified the features that make up the face, the eyes, the nose, the mouth. These abstractions, they previously thought you could teach that to an AI using you know, supervised learning uh, you know, with labeled data, but it turns out you can do it with reinforcement learning. So, you know, in my, uh, the way I see it is like asking an AI to draw um, is something similar to other projects that I've seen on the web in which I think it was uh, IBM Watson, but scientists, uh, for example, asked an AI to compose music. And it turns out actually created a pretty cool music, right? And um, so whether AI's drawing or music is better than uh, what's developed by human being is really a, you know, subjective call. I mean, you can't really say which is better. But uh, let me tell you this. I, you know, I, I actually draw, um, I do sketches, I do watercolors in my spare time. For somebody who loves art, you know, I take a little offense when I hear about AI learning to draw. <laughs> so should I feel threatened by this? Or should we expect to see AI would eventually find a way to provide, you know, somebody like myself with some useful AI tools? How do I think about this? So you definitely, you shouldn't feel threatened by this at all. Uh, what the AI has produced looks like a drawing, looks like art, but is it really art? Are the pictures creative or are they just random? I mean, what is art? Uh, as an electronic engineer, I don't really feel qualified to answer that question, right? Uh, but I think it's generally accepted that art requires thought and the intention to create art, which the AI obviously doesn't have. It's just trying to draw a realistic face. But then it doesn't know what a face is, so it's not trying to suggest any particular expression or mood with its drawing, or it's not trying to elicit an emotional response in the viewer like an artist would. The AI ultimately doesn't understand the subject of the drawing. It doesn't know what that face represents, mm -hmm. so no, I don't think this is art. Um, you could argue, I think you could argue more successfully that the research team are a group of artists using AI as a tool to create art. And who knows in the future, you know, you may find yourself using AI as a tool, helping you make drawings or helping you generate ideas, perhaps. Uh, who knows? All right. Very well put. It was good to talk to you, Sally. You too, Junko. Thank you. That was Junko Yoshida with EE Times editor Sally Ward-Foxton. Hey. Can I read you something? Here we go. 
Carol slammed the door of the apartment without thinking. I won't give in this time, she told herself. This relationship is just too one-sided. <laughs> it's a laugh in itself. I can't even get him to say the word. Relationship. If I give up on this, how can I expect him to share my dreams if I, if I can't get him to listen? Sometimes Taylor could be so unfeeling, so perversely self-contained, so damned macho. I know he loves me, but there's still a shell deep inside. I just can't break through. A place where his real feelings live. How can I trust him if I'm never really sure I get all the way inside him? Yeah, that was from the first novel ever published that was written mostly by an AI program. Self-taught programmer Scott French fed a couple of novels written by Jacqueline Suzanne into an AI program hosted on a Macintosh 2CX. He turned the crank and produced a pot boiler full of sex and drugs that's virtually indistinguishable from anything produced by the eminently imitable Ms. Suzanne. The book is called Just This Once. It was published in 1993, and for obvious reasons, it's one of my prized possessions. That's your weekly briefing for the week ending October 25th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer, Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. Check in with us next Friday for a new edition of E.E. Times On Air. I'm Brian Santo.